Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny will be interviewing internationally renowned spiritual channel, Paul Selig. And the two of them will be discussing his latest new release, the first book in the Beyond to Known trilogy, Realization. So tune in as Paul and his guides take us beyond the perceived limitations of accepted reality and open our minds to ultimate manifestation. And now we welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan. We're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives. Those are found at 1150kknw.com. You can also find out more about me and connect with me for coaching through my website, which is goldenoversoul.com. That is goldenoversoul.com. And uh, we're going to go ahead and dive right into our content today. I'm really excited to welcome back. Um, I believe uh, this guest has been on. This will be the third time around. Mm-hmm. Um, and always excited when a new book comes out. And our guest today is Paul Selig. Um, born in New York City, Paul Selig attended New York University and received his master's degree from Yale. A spiritual experience in 1987 left him clairvoyant. Selig is considered one of the foremost contributors to the field of channel literature working today. He offers channeled workshops internationally and teaches regularly at the Esalen Institute. He serves on the faculty of NY- he served on the faculty of NYU for over 25 years and is the former director of the MFA in Creative Writing Program at Goddard College, where he now serves on the college's board of trustees. He lives in New York City, where he maintains a private practice as an intuitive. And for more information on his public workshops, online seminars, private readings, all the good stuff, just go to paulselig.com. That is paulselig.com. Com. Uh, Paul, welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious, um, I wanted to just kind of start out, since you've been on the show before, um, and the last two uh, times you've been on, we were talking about books in your Mastery Trilogy. And I'm just curious, you know, this this book that we're discussing today here, uh, Beyond the Known Trilogy, the first mm-hmm. of the Beyond the Known Trilogy, it's mm-hmm. called Realization. Um, and I'm curious, you know, does this new trilogy, or I'm sorry, does this new book really stand on its own? Or do you need to have read the previous books for it to really come together and make sense? You know, the guides that I work with say that they teach in a one-room schoolhouse and that they're welcoming everybody to the teaching as it comes, and they'll meet people at the level that they arrive at. And that's been my experience, you know, through the workshops that, you know, the guides teach through me. Everybody's welcome and everybody gets what they need. They've also said that, you know, the first six books were really foundational to where they're taking us now. And I think it really has a bit more to do with a level of of energetic alignment and sort of a comprehension sort of energetically of of some of the concepts that they're speaking to. Um, But I do think that people can enter as as they wish and as they are called to. So early in the book, the guides do bring the readers kind of up to date and even bring them through the attunements from the prior text to support them in being able to to be able to receive this level of transmission. 
Yes. And so in backing up even a little bit, you know, I, I, in the intro, we mentioned your uh, experience in 1987 that left you clairvoyant. And I know you've shared that story on the show before, but I, I would love to hear it again, just kind of how that happened for you. And I've got some follow-up questions on that. Well, I don't even know what it was in retrospect. And I'm, I'm getting to the point where I, I, I want to almost take that out of the bio. Um, <laughs> but what it was for me was... You know, it was the night before this thing called the Harmonic Convergence. It was 1987. I was 25 years old. I was brand new on a spiritual path. I think about three months earlier, I had heard a voice after I started praying for the first time in my life telling me to get my act together, and I followed it. So when I heard that there was this thing happening, this Harmonic Convergence, and I heard people are going to be waking up, I thought, well, if there is a God, why would, it, why would it say no? So I went up to the roof of this building that I lived in with a crystal and a mantra. Someone had given me one of each, and I asked to be woken up. And I think I was trying to teach myself how to meditate that night. And I had an experience of energy moving through my body. And, you know, just pushing up, up, up after the top of my head kind of left me frozen there on the roof and swaying in this energy. And for somebody like me, who had not had any spiritual or religious training whatsoever um, and had been skeptical, I think, and, you know, not a joiner. The experience that I had was meaningful to me because it was palpable, and I started seeing little lights after that. And I don't know if it was because of that or it just all happened at the same time, but I began to see energy, you know, for the very first time. And... And it was transformational for me. I think I needed something like that. I was later told that the you know the mantra that I'd been given was a Kundalini mantra. I didn't even know what Kundalini was. Um, and people said it sounded like it may have been a spontaneous Kundalini awakening. I heard Shaktipa. I heard Soul awakening. And for all I know, I was hyperventilating. I may never know what really happened there. But for me, it was pivotal and supported me on staying on the path that I seem to still be on. Yeah. And, you know, I've interviewed several channels whose work I follow pretty closely. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious of your thoughts, because there are a lot of folks who are taking intuitive development courses now and courses that tell you, you know, learn how to channel. And from the stories that I've heard, at least from the guests I've interviewed, um, that the experience of their, the guides that come through for them it's been way more, what's the word I guess I'm looking for? It, it seemed almost choiceless. Not that I know we mm -hmm. have free will, but it's, it's like they, the, their guides have shown up and said, hey, look, we've, we've agreed we were going to do this. You're going to bring through this work, and um, this is what we're going to work on together. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of, do you feel like that's the case, that when it comes to these channeling experiences for folks like you, this was something that... Um, it, it was agreed upon before you incarnated, and it was something that you guys were going to do together um, versus just being able to learn to channel and something like this coming through. Yeah. Well, I, first of all, I don't know why anybody would want to channel. I don't understand <laughs> that. Uh, frankly, it's taking dictation. I think if you want to develop psychic abilities, and I think those abilities can be developed, you know, clear audience. I don't even I wouldn't know how to teach anybody clear audience truthfully. Um, I don't even understand how it happens. It's telepathic communication, really, is, seems to be what it is. But, you know, 
channeling is a very specific skill set. Claircognizance, clear knowing, which I think is just wonderful, doesn't involve your accessing information from an external consciousness. You know, it really is sort of moving to your innate knowing, the divine knowing that's implicit in all of us. So my, I've been told by the guides, and it's been in the books, that yes, you know, I agreed to this prior to incarnation, and this is something that I signed up for, and that I've been working with them prior to this time. And um, this may be a lifetime where I don't get killed for it, which that would be quite wonderful, uh, <laughs> given what I understand is my strange history with, you know, esoterica. But, you know, it's, that's how I understand it. I, I do suspect that there are people that may have innate ability and they take a class and they're opened up. When I studied energy healing when I was about 31 years old, um, I was studying with a woman who was very gifted, but what she really did, my own opening followed that. You know, the clairaudience came after that, the clairsentience came after that in really palpable ways, and I had to learn what those things meant through my experience of them. So I'm truthfully not a trained medium. I'm not a trained channel. I know people that can support other people in, in developing their skill sets and abilities, and I just show up and let the guides teach through me. That's my job. The, the one thing that you said that, you know, I'm... I, 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 that I have to, to, to be cautious about is, you know, the idea of you have to do this or this is what you have to do. The guys that I work with don't override free will. And truthful, I took two years off once in my probably late 30s. I just decided enough of this stuff. And I stopped doing groups. And um, when I picked up again, which was right after 9-11, because I was living in downtown Manhattan and they'd given me a heads up about the whole thing and I hadn't believed it. I started a group up again, and it was as if I had never stopped. They picked up as if we'd met the last week. The teaching picked up right where it left off. And I, I do believe that high-level guides, or I want to believe at least, are in real respect of our inherent free will. Yeah. Um, I get nervous when somebody says, you know, I'm opening up a channel, and my guides are telling me I have to do X, Y, and Z, or move here and there, and you know, or marry this person or that. You know, um, I go, whoa. I don't get information like that. My guides would let me walk right headlong into traffic if I wanted to, unless I were to say, is this a good time to cross the street? And then yeah. they might say, not wise, you know, because they would still honor my choice. Yeah, and that is one thing that I have noticed with your work that I think is unique, and I actually really enjoy it. I found myself laughing as I was reading this book because you definitely interject and you have this funny discourse with them where you're saying, this is preposterous. I, wait, what is happening? <laughs> I'm having a hard time getting on board with this. Yeah. And it really makes it very authentic. And I'm just curious how that relationship has developed with them where you can step in and question and, and doubt or whatever that looks mm -hmm. like at the moment. Well, I mean, I, I say I'm a conscious channel, which means I'm present for the channeling, but I'm receded. So my little meditation before I sit down, you know, and the books are now done in front of students. So, you know, to sit down and do a lecture, which may end up in a book because the guides will say this is in the book. Um, my meditation has been to, to imagine myself climbing into the backseat of a car and turning the steer, steering wheel over. So I'm in the backseat. I may be sort of, you know, napping in the backseat. But, uh, you know, if I hear something that I have real issue with, 
from the front seat, I've been known to lean up to the driver's seat and say, please explain that, or this makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, the guides will take the question, and they'll say, you know, you know, Paul is interrupting, and blah, 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 blah. Some once in a while, they'll say, Paul has a question, we're not going to take it. We will continue our lecture and address it later. And when they do that, I'm actually usually relieved, because, <laughs> you know, it means they're in charge, they know where they're going, I don't have to understand it right now. You know, I'm not the author of these books. You know, I sit in a chair, I close my eyes, I hear one phrase repeated incessantly until I give it voice, and then the rest of the lecture follows, and then they say at the end, stop now, please, or period, period, period. And I know that's it for now. And that's my job. But my name is appearing on the covers of these books, and I don't want to be participatory to something that could be confusing, deceptive, any of that stuff. You know, there's that simple level of accountability that I hold for my job as channel. And it's because the the deal with the books is that the transcriptions are not edited. What's in the books is what's coming out of my mouth. And if the guides were to say the moon is made of green cheese for real, I would have to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, and then they would either have to explain it, you know, or not. But I'm not going to let that slide. And I, I know that people appreciate the interruptions. It's really not done for anybody else but me, truthfully, at the time that the transmission is, is occurring. Um, there were times, and it's in one of the books, I think, where they told me to get up and take a walk around the block, and they'd still keep talking to, you know, as if just get out of the room. In the very first book, they sent me to an outhouse with a magazine, you know. <laughs> while they continue talking, you know, that was the preference. It feels to me as if it's a loving relationship. I don't feel judged. And I've had people say, your guides, I can't believe they would say that to you. It's all loving. Um, And at times it feels a little bit like, you know, I've got, I'm sitting before a wise teacher who has become wonderfully tolerant with my intrusions. Um, but I think that's part of the agreement or the deal, you know, if they're going to work through me effectively. If it comes to the point when I'm channeling in a, in a deep trance, and I don't know if that will ever happen, and I'm not recalling anything of the transmission, now I recall about a third of it after the fact, you know. But um, if that ever happens, so be it. Then that'll happen when I read, you know, the transcript of the lecture. I'll go, boy, that was interesting. And I still do that now because I hear in fragments whisper, repeat, whisper, repeat, fragment, fragment, fragment. It's not until I see the whole thing typed up by somebody else that I understand how coherent the teaching has been. Yeah. And, you know, before we really dive into some of the content in this latest book, um, I did want to ask one more overarching question Mm -hmm. around this. It seems like since the harmonic convergence in 87 or in and around that time, there have been a proliferation of, of channels with some really incredible wisdom. And I guess throughout the millennia, there have been some wisdom traditions, some texts. I mean, the Bible would be a good example where it seems like, you know, there's, there's some truth in there, but there also is a lot of distortion and, mm-hmm. and then human consciousness has changed significantly since those books were either channeled or written or whatever the messages were. And so I'm, do you kind of feel like we're being given as humans that the, the guides are showing up, yours and others, 
to really help us in the awakenings, to supplement what's there, to meet us at the consciousness that we are in right now, to take us to the next level? Yeah, I do. I mean, the guides say what is true is always true, and they're very quick to say that this is not a new teaching, but that they're bringing it through in a language um, and in a way that can be, I guess, comprehended by people of this time. But they say the truth is always here. We just keep ignoring it and missing it or refuting it. Um, I mean, that's my sense of this. And uh, I like it when the guides say, you know, what is true is always true. And they say their teaching pre-exists organized religion. So I just have to kind of go, okay, you know, we're getting help. It's coming in different ways through different systems, you know. Um, what seems to be a little bit different about the way these guides work is they come with an energy that for many people is palpable. Mm -hmm. And they're supporting people in operating as a radio for that frequency. They say we're all radios. We're always in transmission. So there's, um, I don't know, a, a practicum associated with this work or a um, uh, you know, phenomena, if you wish, that people can attend to through, you know, their work with the guides, which is great because then I don't have to be around, you know, and the guides can do it through the books and the books can be around after I'm not. But I do think this is a time of great change and we're all different, different beings are bringing through different messages through different, you know, different, different channels to support this. Yeah. And yeah. And that actually makes me remember another question I wanted to ask you before we again dive into content, but that this is something that definitely feels very true with your work that, that, that it is an energetic transmission. So sometimes I, I, even if I reread the words, sometimes I can't quite get my, my mind around them, but I know that the words are carrying a vibration that yeah. is changing me just by being present with them and saying yes to the invitations that the guides extend. And could you say a little bit more how this works? Well, the guides say that the books are energetic transmissions that work directly with and on the reader, and they do require consent at that level. They're asking permission right and left. You know, we'll take you here if you're willing to go, but you got to say yes. Um, they say that the, the, there's two books. There's the the words on the page, which are provide, providing, you know, a context for the intellect. Um, and then there's the real book, which is the energetic transmission. And they say, you know, the book could exist just at a level of energy, but we wouldn't be able to handle it in quite the same way without some understanding of what was going on. So that's how I understand what they've said, you know, in the books and what they say to students. But the attunements they work with are done through language and, and in invocation or intonation or, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, um, but they say that the language is encoded with vibration. And so the attunements themselves, you know, once you've made the claim, basically what they say is that you are now, the radio that you are is now tuned to play that higher broadcast. They're giving us coordinates through the language that we then get to align to and sort of, I believe, also get to work with our own stuff through so you can make a high claim without becoming willing to release what has been obstructing that claim from manifesting. And that's much of their work is supporting us through that process. And what are those attunements like? I noticed in this book and I, I, 
I don't know if I just don't remember it, but it seemed like there was more toning in this book than I remember. And I'm wondering yeah, what the experiences the are like from you, not only when you're doing the toning, but also when you're experiencing the attunements, when you're bringing through the words or the vibration that then will be shared with us. Well, you know, I knew that they were delivering a book because they, they had started the book, and I, I don't remember where the workshop was. Um, the, the book that you that you just received that just came out, Realization, and it was it was early in the dictation. I think I was channeling in maybe you know Madison, Wisconsin, or something, or it was Ann Arbor, Michigan, I think. And all of a sudden, they toned, and I went, "Oh, there goes the whole book. They're toning the book." <laughs> And, you know, what are we going to do? Say, stage direction, the guides tone through Paul, which is exactly what's in the book. Um, and the first time I read that transcript, I was dreading it because when the whole book was, was being pulled together, all the transcripts were, you know, paginated and, and sequenced. And I got to that passage, I mean, I felt the energy of the toning as mm. I was reading it. And I went, this is pretty amazing. In the audio book recording, I tone in the studio. You know, it's... Uh, it's what happens. So the toning, I mean, I don't, the toning that they do, they don't always do it. When they do it, it seems to create a collective field that allows for other things to then happen. And that was my experience of it in the workshop and in the book as well. Yeah, it was interesting. I actually, um, of course, your um, publicist sent uh, an advanced copy to me, but I also was able to download the Audible version. So I read as I listened. So I really enjoyed being able to experience the toning, um, both both from the verbal or from the audible and from um, reading it, <laughs> reading along with it. Um, yeah, so so this is the Beyond the Known trilogy, and Realization is book one. So what is the what is the known that we're going beyond, and where are they taking us? Well, they say that we're operating now in a shared octave. They say our reality is a shared octave of, of expression. And an octave has high notes and low notes, and this, there's a common understanding. And I guess that means everything that we know is in tone in this shared field. And what they're doing is they're taking us to what they say is the, the next octave up. You know, they say any piece of music can be played or sung or known in a higher octave, and they say it can go on into infinity. You know, the note C exists into infinity. You know, we're used to the note C within this shared experience. So they're taking us to what they call the upper room, which is another way to describe the, the shared octave. At the end of the last book, which was the Book of Freedom, the end of that book, the guides are welcoming everyone across a threshold. And I didn't know it at the time, but they said, you know, the threshold really was to the upper room. And that's where this teaching, the Beyond the Known teaching, seems to be coming from. Realization itself, that book, seems to be the, sort of the introduction to the upper room, what its properties are, and, and how to, to begin to align to it. The book that they've since channeled, and they finished it about two months ago, is really all about getting rid of all the crap that keeps you stuck on the lower floors, which was no picnic, I have to say. It was the hardest channeling I've ever been a part of. Really? Because my stuff. Oh yeah, it was. It was. It was something. My stuff was flying, and you know, I, I've never been so destabilized personally, and then have to walk into a room to channel before a hundred people, and then the guides will deliver this beautiful, perfect lecture. You know, that override my stuff. 
But what they were really doing, I suspect, was giving me the experience of the book as it was happening, which really is a book about releasing the mask of identity that we've become so attached to, you know. And when you release a mask, you do have to see what the mask has been hiding. And um, the guides say in all their teachings, you know, nothing can be healed until it's brought to the light. So it was very much a passage book. But I do understand it now as the guides have talked about it. They say it really is like moving from one continent to another. And you can't expect to speak the same language or know the same things on the new shore. We want to because we want to always drag the known with us. But the teaching of beyond the known really is the teaching of beginning to align to a higher octave. And they say it's from that place, from that level of alignment, and the attunement that they work with in that book, which is the attunement, I have come, I have come, I have come, which they talk about really as the realization of the embodied true self. And that by nature of being, that true self lifts what it encounters to the upper room through vibrational accord. The one in the upper room can lift a world to it there. But that's done through the knowing of the inherent divine in all things and not through excluding anything from it. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, So actually, this probably would be a good time to take our break before we Mm -hmm. start diving into some of the phrases and the new terms that have come up in this book. Um, So yes, you're listening to Sunny in Seattle. I am joined today by Paul Selig, who has a a new book with his guides out. Um, It is starting a new trilogy, the Beyond the Known trilogy. This is book one. It's titled Realization. Um, And when we come back from our break, we will keep talking about some of the content and what exactly the upper room is. We'll be back in a few. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Are you ready to get unstuck from a bad marriage and embrace your best life? If you're anything like me, you may have spent years creating a life that looks pretty good on paper. There's just one problem. Your marriage is unhappy and unfulfilling, but you're too scared to trade your comfortable life for a future full of unknowns. In my new book, Unhitched, I will give you the tools you need to make the right decisions about your marriage, as well as the confidence that your future can be better and brighter than you can even imagine. I share my own very personal story, and I will guide you through a clear process that will enable you to answer the question, should I stay or should I go? It's a process that will help you tune out fears and unwanted advice, and instead tune into your own intuition and inner wisdom, as well as exit a marriage gracefully and feel secure about your future. Get ready to trade confusion and stagnation for your best life. Unhitched, unlock your courage and clarity and unstick your bad marriage. Available today on Amazon.com. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazarus. And this is Climate Connections. On 10 acres near Washington, D.C., Lincoln Smith grows food, but he does not plant in large tilled fields or tidy garden rows. He farms in the forest. There is plenty of nutrition that can be derived from a more diverse forest-based agricultural system. In his forest garden, Smith grows trees that produce edible nuts and fruits, such as persimmons, mulberries, and pawpaws. The trees grow alongside mushrooms, greens, and perennial berries. Black raspberries, blueberries, currants, you name it. Smith also designs forest gardens for others, even in urban and suburban areas. He says planting small forest gardens not only provides more locally grown food, it increases the tree canopy. 
So we're providing better wildlife habitat. We're, of course, sequestering carbon in the trees themselves and in the soil organic matter that is accumulating year over year as you grow the forest. And then with the healthy soil comes clean water because the water that falls on that site is going to filter through that soil before it goes into the stream in stark contrast to, of course, a parking lot or a tilled field. So with forest gardens, people can grow food and help protect the climate, all on the same patch of land. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. Do you make a positive difference in the world? Do you have a talent, philosophy, base of knowledge, product or service that you know could help a lot of people if only you could reach them? Join Alternative Talk 1150's family of broadcasters and start walking down a fruitful path. As host of your very own program, dial 425-653-1150 and find out just how affordable it can be to have a show on 1150 AM. That's 425-653-1150. Alternative Talk, we have an opportunity waiting just for you. What do trees make you think of? Life, longevity, health? There's a reason for that. They're the building blocks of our ecosystems, capable of restoring land and environment while creating stable food systems and economic opportunity. At Trees for the Future, for 30 years, we've worked with smallholder farmers in developing countries to establish sustainable agroforestry methods. Where there was once deforestation and poor agricultural practices, there are now thriving microenvironments we call forest gardens, made up of more than 50 species of trees and dozens of shrubs, fruits, and vegetables. Through Trees for the Future's forest garden approach, thousands of farming families have successfully brought their land back to life. A sustainable solution to hunger, poverty, and climate change, sponsored by Trees for the Future. You're invited to join the movement at trees.org slash radio. Want to hear something different from talk radio? Keep your dial on Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy, joined today by Paul Selig. And we're discussing uh, the latest book released with the guides called Realization, the first of the Beyond the Known trilogy. So one of the words uh, that that we were talking about before we went to break, um, you mentioned the upper room. Um, so tell us a little bit about, since the Beyond the Known is taking us to a place that is beyond the known, what is this upper room that we are being guided to? Well, they call it the Christ mind sometimes, or the Christ consciousness, or the octave above where we've known. They do talk about it as, as a level of ascension, you know, a place where we can align to while still in body, and that seems to be an important distinction in their teaching. They've begun working with the organism of the body, I think in their fifth book, in the Book of Truth, and the idea that the divine must be renowned in and as matter and not just spirit, that matter is an expression of spirit, finally, just operating in lower density. So they're lifting us. I know who I am. They say this is one of their claims. I know who I am in truth, which is the true self as identity. I know what I am in truth, which is the manifest divine. And I know how I serve, which is its expression. And they say it's that aspect of us, the entirety of us, that aligns to the higher level of vibration, which they call the upper room. The guys I work with don't talk about dimensions. I think they've used the word twice, maybe, in all the years that I've been channeling. And I don't know why. I know what they've said. They said that, you know, they, the language of science is soon will be outmoded in 100 years. What we call things will be renowned. 
you know, they're using the language of music and sound for this teaching. And maybe it's because I, you know, did so poorly in science as a high school kid. I don't know, but they seem to to not use a lot of that language through me. Yeah, it's interesting that you just mentioned science because as I was reading this, um, one of the one of the takeaways that I had is that when we are when we are in the upper room, by virtue of our interactions with things that are in a lower octave, it can alchemize them. It can raise the vibration to the upper room. Mm -hmm. And it made me think of the observer effect in quantum physics, that Mm -hmm. the observer actually changes something, whether it becomes a wave or a particle depends on Mm -hmm. whether there's an observer present. Well, that's what they're teaching. Yeah. I don't, I haven't read quantum physics and I actually don't read anybody's stuff, but I've had scientists come to the workshops and say, your guides are speaking about string theory. And I, I don't even know what it means, but yeah, they say how we witness anything informs the thing we see. And the level of consciousness that it's held in is what we are supporting its existence in. So they do talk about everything being lifted to the upper room or being made new. The claim is, behold, I make all things new. The true self or the divine self as you, they say, sees the divine in all all it witnesses. And by nature of its presence is actually lifting to the higher octave what it encounters through, you know, through the field. That's how I understand it. Yeah, and and what you just said, behold, I make all things new. Now, I recognize that as being a verse from the Bible, um, mm-hmm. having grown up in a Christian household. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, as a Christian, we were taught that there would be a second coming, um, the man coming down on the cloud to save mm-hmm. humanity. And in reading this, there were several references to that. And and uh, do you mind if I share one of those, uh, just read oh, one of these yeah. quotes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, well, I'll actually read these. There were two that I pulled here. Um, If you understand that the divine as you in its expression is what transforms the world, you will stop waiting for a savior to show up in a cloud and do it for you. The Christ has come as each human being who aligns to it. And you don't need to call it Christ because the divine knows no name and may be called by may be called any name and may be recognized as such. So this really feels like Okay, this is this is this is what people. Well, this, perhaps this was the metaphor from the Bible, but this is what it's going to look like. That we're not going to be going up to some pearly gated heaven type situation. That we are actually going to embody it on Earth, perhaps in human form. That it will be that it will be like a, a heaven on Earth, so to speak, as we as we embrace this. Well, I, I mean, I. The guides I work with speak of the kingdom, and their their Mm -hmm. definition of the kingdom is the realization of the divine in all all manifestation. Mm -hmm. God, in fact, is all things. God is the sky and the earth and the body, and anything you see is of one source. They say there's only one note playing in the entire universe. It's just articulating. It's an expression in different ways, different things, different ideas. So they don't talk about heaven on earth as an idea of where we float around with (laughs) wings and, you know, there's angels with us. They talk about it as a level of consciousness. You know, it's being in witness to the inherent divine that must always be here. And that is about moving beyond this collective edict of separation that we've been indoctrinated in and so much so that the guides say you know we're really just perpetuating it you know our belief that we're separate from the one besides us 
as you know, accrue to the level that we believe that we're separate from the source of all things. And they say it can't be true. It is an illusion, but we've created enough evidence in our own density to keep supporting it. So I do get the sense that they are talking about, in some ways, a collective, uh, I don't know what the word is, resurrected Christ, you know, in humanity. Yeah. The Christ, their definition of Christ is the aspect of the Creator that can be realized in material form. It's, they say it's the seed of God that's in all. You know, it, it has to be, because God indeed is all things. And the, the, this, the, re, the realization and the flowering of that seed seems to be their work with us. Yeah, and so in in embracing some of the concepts they're talking about and being able to look at your fellow, the, the humans around you, and be able to see the divine in them, that what you said, that will be the kingdom, being able to see the divine in all, yeah. It, it, it's interesting because there is a lot that uh, we look out on in the world that has perhaps pretty negative connotations, yeah. war, yeah. murder, some really hateful people. So how have you been able to, how, do, how does one apply this in terms of looking at your fellow man and some things that you don't really like seeing? Well... It's a, it's a, there's a lot on this, you know, and the guides really do talk in depth about, you know, this kind of a thing. But the simplest way to understand the teaching is what you damn, damns you back. And what you bless, blesses you in return. And there actually is energy that can be felt in transmission when you do this. When you bless something and you really recognize the divine in something, you can feel the waves of the energy come back. They do it in the workshops that I, I facilitate all the time. And people can feel it. And it's quite something. Um, but conversely, what you damn, what you put in darkness, the guides say, calls you to that very darkness. And so they say you can't lift the evil man to the upper room because you have made him evil. To lift that man to the upper room, you actually have to release the idea of evil. You have to release the negative attachment that you may have you know, been provoked or invited or chosen to agree to perpetuate. So, you know, if you go to this idea that there, if there is an all-loving God, and this is just me riffing right now, if there's an all-loving God, God loves all equally, you know, and it's the hypocrisy of religion that decides that one is more worthy of love than the next. And that's what the guides would say. They would say, if you hear that, run in the other direction, because that's not true. You know, it can't be true. So yeah, the and I to the upper room of what you see seems to be the key. Yes. Okay, and so then I, in reading the book, I, I, I love that you always ask for examples, and those are really helpful to me when the guides make it specific yeah. because sometimes I'm not sure if I'm interpreting the concepts correctly. Sure. But I, I'm still, I, I would love if you can give more clarification. So I'm thinking, um, you know, I can't tell if I am looking at something with my small self or if it truly yeah. is my true self, the Christed self, the divine mm -hmm. self that's doing the looking or the interpreting. I mean, I'm thinking, let me just use an example. If I look and I see, um, you know, the, the Syrian refugees and I think of mm -hmm. how yeah. horrible it is that they're being put in these situations and... And I am really angry at the people who are not supporting them. And mm -hmm, if I mm -hmm. look at that and I see, I think, okay, I know that everything is God. So there is mm -hmm. God in all of that that is happening. 
is that my small self that's rationalizing it, or is that really my true self that's looking well, at it? I'm still unclear how this applies. Saying, well, everything's God, so that must be God too. I, I suspect you're in denial. I think the realization of the divine is an act that occurs. It's a level of, of recognition. You know, there's a difference between thinking and knowing. And the guides mm-hmm. say, when you're thinking, you don't know. So I, I, I think, you know, where the confusion comes at times is because I see this stuff and I get outraged, you know, and the guides that I work with say, you know, it's, you know, self-righteousness is always the small self. But mm-hmm. if I'm activated to that, to, to support something and to, to move it to a positive through my reaction to it, I can be provoked in a very positive way. I don't think this is a passive teaching in the last book the guide started taking apart the prison systems i mean you know it's like this whole idea of, of this culture's attachment to punishment they say which needs to be renowned if we're to lift as a culture you know in our attachment to seeing people hung in the town square whether the town square now is the internet or you know the green you know in front of the courthouse but this is who we have been so you know, my understanding of this, as best I can, is that the only problem that we have, and this is according to the guides, is what they call the denial of God. That's it. Now, mm. the one who perpetuates murder, or would enslave another, or debase another, whatever it is, you know, is one who has denied the inherent divine in himself, because you have to be denying it in yourself to deny it in another. The divine in you knows the divine in everybody else, but that can be obscured even though it's always present. That spark must always be there. So to lift another is to realize the inherent divine that must be there in spite of all appearance. To the contrary, that doesn't mean if you walk across some guy, you know, beating up his girlfriend on the street, you don't try to stop it. You stop it. You know what I mean? It's not about not acting, but we're always acting at the level of consciousness that we hold. So to realize the inherent divine in that man, to truly know that man, and to be able to lift him, according to the guides, will in fact be to transform the man, to re-know the man beyond the fear that he's acclimated to. The guides I yeah, I work with say, you know, the action of fear is to claim more fear. And every time we act in fear, and I would suggest retribution and all those other things are, are faces of fear, we create more of the same. They say we've lived on a plane so long with, you know, war that we expect war. And as long as we expect war, we're going to keep having it. So we have to lift, and they use that word, lift to a level of consciousness where war can't exist because there's no need for it. And war, they say, is an act of fear, often greed because it's often about property or, or other things. But, you know, to lift that is to move beyond fear where war does not have to play itself out the way we're used to. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up fear. I, I, there, fear is mentioned a bit in the text, and I, I pulled one quote that the object of fear uh, is to replicate itself at yeah. all costs. And it almost, mm-hmm. the way that it was written it or, or spoken, it made it feel like fear has its own consciousness or energy or something. Uh-huh. And I, I, what, it, what do you make of fear in the book? 
Well, I know what you know. I, you know, I channeled it and I proofed it. Um, and you may have put more thought into it than perhaps I have. I mean, my big question about fear, because they have done that increasingly in the books, and they've sort of characterized fear. And they say, you know, fear is its own broadcast. You know, when you're, they've, they've said in the past, when you're, when you're in fear, you're not just in your own fear, you're aligned to all fear. You're in yeah. that level of broadcast, so you have to move beyond it. One of the ways to move beyond it is not to agree to it. You know, they say, you know, fear can be very seductive and it makes a very poor bedmate. You don't want to invite it in with you. You know, it's, it, will, it will take everything that it can. But they also say, because they're pretty consistent in their teaching, you know, God is all things. And so then the question was, well, is fear part of God? And they say, actually, yes, but it denies God. It doesn't know that it is. So fear is of God because nothing can be outside of God, but it denies its own true nature, you know, which is holy. And that when that flips, then fear itself is lifted. Do you understand? They say fear is a liar. And the gods say, in truth, a lie cannot be held. And when you bring the, the energy of the truth to this, to this energy, it has to move, you know. Yeah, and that's where it just gets a little bit a little bit trippy for me because I think, mm -hmm. you know, if we are the divine split off in form mm -hmm. to experience itself, then how did it split fear off so wholly and completely that it would have its own, <laughs> that it would be so far removed from the true self that it could exist and be doing its own thing over there, if that even makes any I don't sense. Know. This... <laughs> you know, it's a good question. Um, I don't get that it's trippy at all. I just get that it's a creation. You know, it's a creation. You replicate something long enough, it's got its own energy. You know, yeah. that's really what it is. I mean, I don't know if I should even try to channel today. I'm a little distracted because I've got this beeping happening behind me, but I can see if they want to address this at all. And I'll just say that if I do channel, you know, I whisper and I repeat, and it's miserably distracting. So let me just <laughs> okay. see what they want to say. You're understanding fear wrongly. They're saying you're understanding fear wrongly. While it is a presence, while it is a presence, has its own objective, has its own objective. It is not its own conscious. It is not its own consciousness. It is, in fact, your consciousness. And in fact, your consciousness, your projection, your projection that has amassed as this thing, that has amassed as this thing. When you feed anything, it grows. When you feed anything, it grows. And fear is fed well. And fear is fed well. It has its own idea of itself through this. It has its own idea of itself through this. You must desire me. You must desire me. You must obey what I say. You must obey what I say to mandate your own well-being, to mandate your own well-being. The action of fear, in fact, the action of fear, in fact, is to support itself, is to support itself and your freedom from fear. And your freedom from fear does not make you vulnerable, does not make you vulnerable. In fact, it gives you liberation. In fact, it gives you liberation. We're not acting in fear. When you are not acting in fear, you are lifting your field. You are lifting your field to a level of agreement, to a level of agreement where fear is no longer present, where fear is no longer present. Indeed, that is the upper room. And indeed, that is the upper room. To lift from the upper room, to lift to the, to the upper room is to be outside of fear, is to be outside of fear. Thank you. That's always good clarification. <laughs> Sometimes I get noodling on these things and I don't think That's I come away with things correctly. So I appreciate the correction there. Mm -hmm. um, and then on that note, actually, one of the things that I did take away and that always gives me great relief is that it's, you know, it's mentioned in the book that, that the true self decides prior to incarnation, the level of agreement that it can or yeah. will hold in a lifetime. Yeah. It's not really yeah. our small self or personality that decides that. Yep. So I 
<laughs> I kind of feel like when I don't really get a concept, if I don't really think that I'm fully taking it in, that I can trust that my true self has it covered and I can just keep showing up for the material and that what I need from it will be taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get a thumbs up to that. You know, you're, you're working with the energy of the text and the energy of the teaching. You know, there are people... I don't know how they manage it to go back and reread these texts and say that each time they do, they read a different text. They're in a different place to, to understand it. The fact that these things read as well as they do, given the fact that they were entirely spoken, there was no writing, there was transcribing from, from audio tape or videotape, um, you know, it's, it's surprising to me. But I, I understand these aren't beach books. They're not page turners. <laughs> I don't know that they were meant to be. Um, but, yeah, you know, they're, they're still working with you. I actually was a woman. I did a workshop in Berkeley last weekend, and there was this lovely woman there, this middle-aged woman. And, you know, she, she said, you know, I, I know, I don't usually hear things, but I heard Take the Book of Love and Creation, which is the second book. It's also the largest book to work. And she, she'd never felt the energy of the books. It was a very funny story. She said, so I didn't know what to do with the book. So she said, I, I, I heard to sit on it. She <laughs> sat on the book and she was getting a thrill ride for the entire day at work. You know, the energy what? was just shooting up her butt. She said it was shooting up my butt. She never felt anything like it. And I thought, well, that's a great use of the book. I should, we should be selling it on another page in Amazon if it's going to give, give people a, a joy ride. But I thought, you know, how funny. So she was getting the book is what she said. And, you know, she said there are people actually that, you know, deal with these books by just being in their energy, which I don't understand. But I do know because I can feel it, too. The books have their own torque. You know, they're strangely living things. And they do seem to interact with people at the level of consciousness that they come to the book with. Yeah, and I, I I've had the I not not the same same experience as the lovely woman in Berkeley, but yeah, I when these books have such an interesting energy, and I just love that's why I enjoy listening to them on Audible. There's something, the effect that it has, and just hearing your voice, and then the words are in whatever the energetic transmission is behind them, that is incredibly soothing and almost hypnotic in the sense that it just it just you know, it brings a level of peace. Good. Um, yeah. So, um, I want to make sure that we mention, um, before we get too close to the end of the hour, I know you are coming to Seattle. Um, uh-huh. it will be just in a very few short weeks, October 5th through 6th mm-hmm. doing, um, aligning to a new life, a channeled weekend workshop. Do you want to tell folks what they could anticipate if they decide to come out and see you that weekend? Sure. I mean, every workshop is different. Usually in the morning, the guides will teach and they'll they'll tell us what they're going to do over the course of the next couple of days. They get everybody attuned to the energies that they work with and they get people working with it. And after that, all bets are off. I mean, they're always teaching forward and they're always teaching to the collective group. But a workshop is the guides teaching, taking questions on the teachings and on people's personal lives as well and real hands-on work with the energy in ways that people can, you know, work with, you know, well beyond the, the, you know, the days of the workshop. Once you're attuned, you're attuned for life. Yeah. And if you want to find out more about that, just go to paulselig.com, paulselig.com. And under the events page, you can find the information there. And that'll be October 5th and 6th. Um, Yeah. So we've got just a few minutes left. um, And I wanted to ask, 
You know, one of the things that I was um, noticing in the book is it feels like, you know, you've got the upper room and then we've got the experience in the lower octave Mm -hmm. and the vacillation between the two. What has been your experience of that? Is it is it a pretty tangible thing or is it subtle? For me, it's pretty tangible. I mean, when I'm in the upper room, I'm not frightened. It's that simple, you know, and I'm able to perceive the inherent divine in who I'm with. When I'm channeling, it's really easy for me because I'm operating at a higher level of consciousness. And when I'm in a group, I can feel the energy as well. The book that they've since delivered really is about that process of not going back up and down the stairs. I mean, what they say is, We've been living in a fifth-floor apartment. We've got our scrapbooks, our family pictures, you know, the ex's clothes in the closet still, you know, all that old stuff. And we're being given this new space, say, on the 12th floor. Um, But we're comfortable in the fifth. That's what we're used to. So every time we go back upstairs, we remember something we need from the lower. And we Mm -hmm. go back, and then we bring our vibration down. They say it's finally a process of acclimating to the higher You know, we have to get used to playing that station. I don't think it's a test. I don't think it's, you know, something that one has to pursue actively. I do think it is about alignment in the consciousness that we hold. And the guides say they're supporting us in doing that. But for me, you know, the up and down can be uncomfortable, you know, and I'm more used to the down. It's what I've lived most of my life in. And when I begin to have these experiences of the new, it really is a bit like living in another planet. Like, what is this? This is really strange. It feels really good to be, you know, just to be. Yeah, and with with less than a minute left or so, can you give us a specific example of something that you've experienced, upper room versus lower room? Like how you knew you were in the upper room? You know, it's, it's hard to say it. Um, as I said, I'm not afraid. And I'm also fully in the present moment. And fully in the present moment, I'm able to know who another is without deciding who they should be to me or who they have been. I'm operating in this sort of what the guides call the omniscient now, where things may be known as you need them. I mean, that's my best take on it thus far, but I'm a student of this work. I'm not ascended and I'm not enlightened and I'm not realized. I'm party to this teaching, but there are people I know um, that are working with this stuff that are having huge experiences with it. And my reticence still is, well, I'm the channel. You know, I'm just here to take the dictation. (laughs) Well, we're sure glad that you continue to take the dictation. So thank you, Paul. Um, And thank you for being here today. It's been um, a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. And I'm really excited for everyone to get to check out the newest book, Uh, Realization, the first of the Beyond the Known trilogy. Um, And you can find out more by going to paulselig.com. Paul, thanks for coming back to Sunny in Seattle. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. And for everybody out there, thanks for listening to Sunny in Seattle. We'll see you next week.